0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions.
1: Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello, Professor Gershon.
2: Good morning, Liz. It's great to be here. Uh, Glad I'm not catching a plane this week. And uh, it is wonderful to have T. Kilpatrick on. Uh, T. is a graduate of our law school. Uh, She was a graduate in 2005. Uh, She clerked for uh, federal judge uh, Alan S. Alexander. uh, S. Alan Alexander, excuse me. And uh, she's been practicing in many areas, but uh, today we're going to focus on her practice in criminal law. And she's going to work us through the criminal uh, justice system. And I'm thrilled to have her here.
1: Welcome, Tiffany Kirkpatrick. Good morning, Liz, and it's Tiffany Kilpatrick. Oh, I'm Hi. sorry. No. Thank you. And in addition to uh, being in private practice with the uh, Hill in Minyard Law Firm, you're also an adjunct professor there at the University of Mississippi School of Law. What are some classes you've taught?
3: I taught only legal research. Any other classes, I would have just been asked (laughs) to be a special lecturer in.
1: Fantastic. We're glad you're with us today.
2: A, uh, the legal research and writing class is probably the most important class students take in some ways because they use it in every aspect. So, I'm uh, really happy to have had her as an adjunct. And you know, today, um, we want to focus on what people should expect if they are unfortunately in the criminal justice system, and how you know how a lawyer like. T can help them navigate that. Uh, Tiffany likes to be called T, and so uh, you know, how can T help them navigate that system? So why don't we why don't we start with uh, you know, say somebody's arrested. How soon after they're arrested should they see counsel?
3: That's a no brainer. They need to seek counsel immediately. Far too often, by the time we get to the discovery phase, and I'll cover that in just a moment, uh, they've already given a confession. They do not realize that police officers can lie to them, and they can. They're they're allowed that. There's nothing unconstitutional about it. An officer could say, Look, you're not going to be in any trouble. Just tell us the truth. And of course, everybody wants to get themselves out of trouble uh when you're in a hot seat in a room in a jail in an orange jumpsuit you want to get out of there immediately and it sounds like a pretty great option they do need to seek counsel immediately someone to reassure them that yes the Miranda rights are not a joke you need to remain silent they're so much better off by not saying a word
1: and they they do do have to give you the one phone call to contact a lawyer or representation
3: well, you know, they could call whoever they want. Um, you know, I see a lot of folks that just call a family member. They're nervous. They're, they're worried about their child getting out of school. You know, you don't get arrested on your own terms. It could be that they call an employer because they're worried about losing their job. Uh, certainly our jail here, Los Angeles County Detention Center, which we all lovingly refer to as LCDC, they are pretty great about letting them make calls at booking. They don't just restrict them to one. They're, they're routinely allowed to call lawyers. But they usually don't. They call mom, they call employer, they call fiance, they call just about anybody except for a lawyer.
2: But, you know, and that's the thing, I mean, so you can help them navigate through this system. So let's say I'm arrested and I hire you, and I you know, I hear terms like, we've heard about indictment lately, and arraignment, and that's right. so confusing. What are those things? So could you walk us through, like, what happens to me next?
3: Yeah, so you get arrested, And you will appear for an initial appearance within 48 hours. Uh, And I'm going through an arrest on a felony, not a misdemeanor, okay? okay? We're not worried about a misdemeanor, I don't think, in this area. If you're arrested for a felony, you'll be incarcerated. Within 48 hours, you'll go to justice court. At justice court, they'll tell you what you've been charged with, meaning there's... You know they believe that you committed this crime but it also allows time for whatever investigatory department it is whether it be the sheriff's office or the police department or perhaps even dea or fbi if, it's, if it has federal involvement or ties you'll find out what you're charged with at that point you'll be set a bail from that point on it it it, it takes it becomes more time consuming essentially You have to be presented, your case does, in front of a grand jury. That's when a grand jury determines whether there's probable cause. And, of course, people think probable cause, wow, that must be a pretty high standard. And it's not at all, right? It's just likely that you committed this crime. If if we thought of reasonable doubt as being, you know, say on on a graph of 1 to 100 being 99%, I would put probable cause at right about 15%.
2: So and that's, that's when, when you talk about grand juries, that, that's when somebody's died in that case.
3: Well, the grand jury decides. Do they find that there's probable cause to believe that you committed this crime? But grand juries don't meet every day, day in, day out. Uh, for instance, here, if you were arrested back in the fall, your grand jury in this county would not hear that case until this month.
2: Well, wow. that's a... So you could, you could be on hold for a while.
3: Yeah, you could either sit in jail that entire time, or you could be out on bond wondering uh, if you were going to be indicted or not. And if you don't get indicted, we call that no true bill. That means that the grand jury found that there was a want of probable cause, and they will issue a no true bill, which is what you want if you're a defendant. So now if you go, when you go... Does uh, someone
2: in front of a grand jury have right to counsel?
3: No. You, it's entirely in secret. I, as a criminal defense lawyer, cannot know what was presented. I cannot know what evidence was presented. Uh, generally, it's done by hearsay. Usually, an officer will go in and explain and present evidence.
2: Well, so, so, so when we hear that somebody's been indicted, that, that by no means means that they're guilty.
3: No, not at all. Not at all.
1: This morning we're talking about uh, criminal defense and if you'd like to be a part of our show we would love for you to join us you can give us a call 1877 MPB ring that's 1 1- You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. Our guest this morning is attorney and adjunct professor Tiffany Kilpatrick. T, um, let's back up just a little bit. Uh, If you're arrested and you call your mama, you call your employer, and you don't have an attorney when you get to justice court, what happens then?
3: Great question, Liz. At justice court, if you do not have an attorney, they are going to appoint one of the public defenders to your case right then and there at that initial appearance. So that means for about 48 hours, You could be flying solo without a lawyer if you don't contact someone. But at that initial appearance, you will get a lawyer.
2: Well, now, like, I mean, what about, so we, when you get a lawyer, now we talked about bail. Well,
3: is, and let me back up well, real quick. That, I do not mean to say that you'll have a lawyer in the courtroom representing you. You will be given a lawyer's name. You'll be given, them, given a phone number to contact that attorney, and you'll be able to meet with them. However, you'll go through that initial appearance where the court sets bail on your own unless you've already hired a lawyer in those 48 hours.
2: How does that work out with bail? I mean, is it possible I wouldn't get bail, or why wouldn't I?
3: It is possible that you wouldn't get uh, bail. Let's say, for instance, it were a capital murder case, you're not going to get bail, right? Or it would be some pie-in-the-sky number, I don't know, something that you could never make. We have now, thankfully, in the state of Mississippi, we have rules of criminal procedure, and believe it or not, we did not have those for quite some time. Uh, That's been wonderful, and so we actually have a schedule in there to look at uh, as to what are presumptively okay constitutional bails to set uh, on certain felony crimes. But that said, it's all due to the individual, Um, you know, and that comes down to our Mississippi Constitution. It matters. What are their ties to the community? Are they a flight risk, for instance? You know, Professor Gershon, you just have your wife and your children in town, correct? You don't have aunts, uncles, grandparents. You don't have a long-standing... No, not at all. ...tie. That would count against you. Also, you have the ability to to pay bonds. You would have the ability to abscond, perhaps. So your bond would have to be set higher than, say, someone with less ties... I mean, with more ties to the community and substantially less money. With $50,000 to you would not be constitutional for, say, someone who's indigent, who is receiving SSI and has no other form of income. Now,
2: I do want my wife to know if she's just in case. <laughs> I do think that's an important part of the community. <laughs>
3: well, I agree. I agree. My children, too. I agree.
1: All right. Well, if you have a question about the laws concerning criminal trials, call us at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one 1- call us soon because this hour goes by fast our email address is legalterms at mpbonline.org the fourth amendment to the constitution is important important for criminal defense law we'll remind you of this right when we come back you're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio
0: to in legal terms on MPB Think Radio.
1: Welcome back to In Legal Terms. Not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org/inlegalterms. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershen from the University of Mississippi School of Law with our guest Tiffany Kilpatrick. T is an adjunct professor and is also in private practice. And as we teased before, if you don't happen to have a copy of your Constitution handy, I'll let you know that the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, applicable to the states through the Fourteenth Amendment, prohibits the police from using unreasonable search and seizures to gather evidence. Do you keep a copy of the Constitution on your phone or in your pocket, T? I,
3: I do not. I, I think <laughs> I've got that one pretty much nailed down. Oh, good.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, you know, one other one is the, uh, the amendment that requires uh, that everyone have an attorney. Um, that didn't used to apply in states except in capital murder cases, but my good friend, former dean Bruce Jacob was the attorney for the state of florida who lost the case of gideon uh, and gideon said now that even in uh, non-capital cases uh, everyone is entitled to a lawyer so that's that's important that people as they navigate this process have someone like t who can help them.
1: well we are so that's glad fine. to have t with us and we have a couple of calls on the line we're going to go ahead and go now to joe in magnolia joe thanks for calling in too. in legal terms
4: yeah, I'm uh, I have got a problem. I've been trying to get a Mississippi license, and they give every time I go down to the register to the motor vehicle place, they tell me there's a red flag on me that I've got a couple of warrants out for my arrest in the state of Massachusetts for something I did stupid years ago. And uh, this is back in like '89. I just got out of jail, for God's sakes, and I wanted to get the hell out of Massachusetts because Massachusetts is, if they're going to make a state into a penitentiary state, that's the state they're going to do it in. I was born and raised there, I know. I've been through the system up there. They, they sucked me in and spit me out. No, and that's my bare bones. I'm just now getting my life back together because of them. Because they, if they want me so bad, why don't they tell Mississippi to send me up there and I take care of it? Because right now I'm on disability and I'm my back's bad and I've got and I've got issues with uh, lymphoma and all that other crap that's crawling up my spine, and and I got to worry about getting to doctors. Now I got to beg and borrow from Medicaid systems. Oh.
1: Joe, do you have a question for our experts?
4: Well, probably not. I guess what I'm trying to find out is how do I go about getting my license straightened out in this state because I'm having a hell of a time. I'm writing letters up there, but I'm not getting no response. Professor Gershon, do you have a
1: suggestion on how he could get a uh, his license straightened out when he has outstanding warrants in another state?
3: You on this one. sure uh, you know I am authorized only to practice law in Mississippi uh, that said he would need to contact whatever courts those are he said and I could barely hear Joe and I appreciate him calling uh, he said Massachusetts
1: well he's in uh, Mississippi but he couldn't get his uh, driver's license in Mississippi because it was they said it was suspended because he had outstanding warrants in Massachusetts
3: Okay, that's that's what I understood. He would need to take care of those in Massachusetts. And I, I and I, I know that he said that they were old, that's probably something that could be easily handled, I would imagine. Just after he won't, he won't he won't have an avenue here in Mississippi to take care of those Massachusetts
1: one. All right, Joe, I, I think I, I foresee a trip in your future. Thanks for calling in. We're going to go next to Dean in Ripley. Dean, thanks for calling in to, in legal terms, go ahead.
5: Well, well thank you for being here. I appreciate MPB and that support. Uh, my question is a little bit off the track of what you're talking about today. Uh, I have a question about... What I call a bad lawyer, I had a lawyer on a divorce, and, and we were like, for instance, on mediation. He called me up and said, well, what do you want to mediate? I gave him a list of items, say A, B, and C, and we went to mediation. He, he talked about X, Y, and Z, not what I told him to do. And also, when I initially hired the fella, uh, the, the courthouse was about an hour and a half, two hours from his office, I asked him if he charged me for windshield time, for drive time. He said, no, he just charged me for time he's in the courtroom, and he didn't do that either. So I wonder if there's any recourse I have. You know, I, as a layperson, I kind of suspect all the laws are written by lawyers to protect lawyers, you know, by and for and of the lawyers, and I probably just stuck with this guy. But I'm wondering if there's a particular institution I can reach out to or some way— not necessarily. I don't know if I'd ever get a nickel back this guy, but just 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 to just to put it out there in the public to let him let people know who may consider getting him or uh, uh, what his practices are like.
4: And that's all.
3: I, I can respond to that. Uh, the Mississippi Bar oversees attorneys; they oversee our conduct. Uh, obviously, we have a duty to our clients. Um, And they uphold that duty. Where we fail as attorneys, they will come in and try to right those wrongs. So I would tell him that he needs to contact the Mississippi Bar. Uh, They have a website. I believe it's msbar.org. I believe that's correct. Uh, But just a simple Google search of Mississippi Bar will show uh, their website. You're able to file complaints. They're made to be user-friendly for lay. for lawyers, uh, and any problem that you have with an attorney, any other listener, you can certainly take those to the Mississippi Bar, and, and they take care of those kinds of situations. And there's
2: even a fee few dispute uh, form that you can fill out to start, a con- you, know, if you if you have a fee dispute with your lawyer, uh, which sounds like maybe there's, there's partly that there, too. So, great resource. Absolutely.
1: Life. Dean, we're so glad that you called in. We are grateful to all of our callers. If you have a question, today we're talking about the criminal defense process and the criminal legal system. Our number is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Our address is for an email is legalterms at legalterms@mpbonline.org. We're talking with attorney, professor, and uh, attorney and professor Tiffany Kilpatrick about criminal defense. Well, let's move on to the trial process. Um, about how long does it take to? We talked about uh, the grand jury. How long does it take to go to trial?
3: Longer than anyone would think. Uh, <laughs> Quite frankly, you know there are some cases that could be tried quickly. Generally, as a criminal defendant, you do not want to do that. You want let's look at it this way: the government has all the time in the world to make their case against you. Pretty much, right? I mean, they, they can pull everybody off their other cases. They can investigate. They have tons of people, tons of resources, money that they can spend depending on what agency it is criminal defendant, you've got your lawyer and whatever staff that lawyer has, which is not gonna to be too terribly much because generally it's it's the trial lawyer that makes all the decisions. You don't you know, you wouldn't want it any other way. But you've got to give that lawyer time, uh Quite simply, you're, you're not the only criminal defendant that that lawyer represents, or certainly you wouldn't want a lawyer where you are right? <laughs> the public client, right? Um, but they need time to build a defense. And it's funny, the things that matter to a lawyer are not what is readily apparent to a criminal defendant. I see that all the time. You know, I'll talk to one witness, and they'll tell me, well, you know, I saw him at Oh, and I forgot his wife was at such and such. Well, you know, that's what we call an alibi. Client, why didn't you tell me about that you know, I shouldn't have been seeing that old girl in the first place. I didn't want anybody to find yeah, I mean, it's, it's always something. And so it does take a lawyer a, a good amount of time to build up a good defensible case. And, look, not every case is defensible. Sometimes you need to cut a deal with the district attorney's office because your case simply is not a winner. And, and those are hard facts, but in today's day where you have – so many recordings, be it audio or video, uh, especially in drug cases, it, it's really complicated to try to come up with reasonable doubt in those situations. And, and the best you can do as a criminal defendant is have a lawyer who's aggressive; who can work hard to enter some real good faith clean negotiations with the DA's office.
2: So, you know, when, especially if I say you do go to trial, right? now, yeah. now you're you're you're, you're uh, in this trial hook with a client. So how does all this work? I mean, what I've heard about this whole process of jury selection. Yeah. How does that work?
3: It's witchcraft. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, and there's always talk about what is what is the most fair thing to do uh, in terms of jury. As a defense lawyer, I want a jury that really resembles my client and the community that we're in. Uh, you know, race matters on a jury, certainly. Uh Lawyers listening are familiar with, with the term bats and challenge. Uh, you know, you have a right. If, if if you're an African-American and you want some African-American people on your jury, uh, you're entitled to that. Uh, and I've heard a lot of arguments recently that we should not have those anymore. In other words, like, whoever on the lottery is picked first to be on a jury, they just sit Nobody wants that. I don't know any criminal defense lawyer around here that wants that. I don't know any DAs that want that. If you've ever, and I would suggest this to anybody, at some point in your life, you participate in a trial. Either watch it. Uh, that would be preferable, right? Nobody really wants to be on the jury. Nobody wants to be the defendant uh, and, and probably even less want to be the lawyer. But go and watch a trial. And it's, it's fun to see, we call it, you know, when the jury first comes in and you're looking, looking at this panel who all could be potential jurors. You'll see folks out there that are falling asleep. You'll notice some people that seem highly agitated either for or against the defendant. You have to get a sense of being able to read people fairly quickly. You'll be wrong. You can certainly be wrong, but, you you know, you just have to use your common sense. You'd be surprised how many times both the district attorney and the criminal defense lawyer agree, we don't want this person on this case. We wouldn't be there if we both didn't believe in our case. And so we want people that are really going to give it due diligence and work, not sleep during the trial, you know, be awake, be interested, and be able to produce some lively conversation in the jury room if we think that we need it.
1: And I'm sure we've all watched on on television some of the trials, and one of the exciting parts on television is the, the opening statements. Tell us what's the goal, what's the purpose for that?
3: It's just to set the stage for what you want the jury to do you know in opening statements, you'll people make promises they tell the jury they're going to prove this that and the other uh, of course that's the most heavy on the government right they've got to prove their case the defense doesn't have to prove a thing we, we can just sit there and let them prove it or not of course you know in real life you do have to discount everything you can't just rely on the fact that the jury's going to find that they didn't prove it. I think juries uh, they they tend to they tend to frown upon that person who's sitting in the defense chair merely because well all these cops think that he did it. Everybody in this room seems to think he did it. I mean why would I differ I, you know that presumption of innocence is Everyone thinks that it's a, it's a grand idea, and of course it is. It, it will, it, that will never be tackled. That's the way that it has to be. But it, it's hard for juries to really wrap their mind around the fact that I've got to consider this person innocent and let the government prove that they are otherwise. And so that's all an opening statement is. And it's also, for a defense, it's our chance to... Well, actually, during Bull Dyer, when, we've got, when we're when we picking out our jury members, that's when we sort of befriend the jury. Uh, but opening statement is when we personalize our defendant, we try to get the jury to see him or her as an individual, as a person, perhaps a neighbor, a friend, another human being that could quite potentially see that person be one of those jurors. They could be sitting in that seat. We try to make them appreciate that this is not some just random bad person. This could be anybody.
2: Well, this is all great, and we're going to have to take a break now um, because MPB will be upset with me if we don't. This is fantastic. <laughs> and uh, and we'll, we'll talk more about the trial when we come back. Sure. after break.
1: That's right. We hope uh, our listeners will participate. Give us a call. We're talking about criminal defense with attorney and professor T. Kelpatrick. The number is one mpb ring that's 1-877-672-7464 call for your to give us your questions you can also send us an email legalterms at mpbonline.org now the fifth amendment to the constitution provides for criminal defense we'll talk about that and more when we come back you're listening to in legal terms on mpb think radio
0: You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
1: You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert, and we hope you'll subscribe to our podcast. There's many different podcasting platforms. I happen to like Podcast Addict. I downloaded it to my phone. I touch on the plus sign that took me to the page to search for podcasts. Then I typed in in legal terms in the search area and it brought up in legal terms. I was able to touch the photo, then subscribe, and now I'm notified when any new episodes are loaded up. Someone who has been tried and acquitted of a crime cannot be charged with that offense as mandated by the double jeopardy provision of the Fifth Amendment. the constitution and this morning we are talking about the criminal defense process with our guest attorney and professor tiffany kilpatrick we we've been talking about the trial phase and we were talking about uh opening statements now let's move on to witness examination and presenting evidence is that just like how it goes on tv or tell us how that actually works
3: Well, you know, one big difference uh, between TV and real life is generally, you know, the lawyers don't hate each other. We actually work together all the time, right? Uh, and so I, I, I don't watch many crime shows anymore. Uh, I have to admit, growing up, I watched L.A. Law consistently. I uh, loved it. But at any rate, I don't anymore. Um, but we do get along. We work together too much. We, and we, we have a respect for one another and what we do, uh, you know. Uh, so that being said, generally, before trial starts, I notice on TV or in some of these high profile cases, it seems as though they're fighting over all this evidence. That really doesn't happen very often in the real world. The prosecutor already knows what evidence we're getting because, hey, they gave it to us, right? Uh, We got their police files, their reports. Those are what we use in our defense. Uh, So they already know what it is. There's not a whole lot to fight over. And as far as any evidence we would gather, you know, my favorite in movies, of course, would be the surprise witness. I mean, y'all, tell me how to get one of those in, okay? I'm dying to know. It, It doesn't happen. We would have submitted to the prosecution, you know, weeks in advance or at least days in advance. 10 days at least, you know, who our witnesses are, where they live, what they're going to be talking about. Discovery in cases, meaning the information that both sides possess, that goes both ways. It's not a one-way street. And so there just really isn't a lot of fighting over evidence. The fun part, though, which is accurate on TV, of course, is the direct examination and the cross-examination. And I say this all the time to young lawyers because it's so true. You never know what somebody's going to do on the stand.
2: Have you ever had a client lie to you on the stand?
3: Uh, well, I, I think know. I'll go to the next question. <laughs> <place. laughs> uh, sure, I, I think people, I, I'm sure people have lied on the stand. That said, I find that most people are surprisingly vague or very honest on the stand. They they take it serious when they get up there. And it's nerve-wracking. because so They may seem super talkative and super aggressive outside of the courtroom and they're going to set the record straight you know they just need to get into that courtroom and when they get in there the story changes and that's because it's intimidating they're extraordinarily nervous um and they're most of them i do believe they tell the truth when they get in that room unfortunately sometimes it's not the truth that the lawyers had heard prior to them getting on the stand that happens.
2: I think,
1: Liz, we have a call, I understand. We do. We're going to go to David, who's on the road. David, be extra careful, but we're glad you've called in to participate on In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Well,
6: well, thank you very much. A couple of things. Uh, One, I'm married to a prosecuting attorney in Washington, D.C., so that's kind of interesting. And at some point in the program, it, it would be interesting for you guys to discuss what happens when you're on the defense side, and you recognize that you have a moral obligation, uh, ethical obligation, to put up a, a strong defense. And you also know in your heart that this individual may not be the uh, the best of character and might be a danger to society. That'll be, an, and I'll let you guys deal with that afterwards. One of the other things that I've noticed when you talked earlier about the state bar essentially being there to make sure that attorneys uh, do things correctly. As a guy who's dealt with a ton of attorneys in my international company over the years, categorically I've found that to be untrue. I had a circumstance in our Dallas office where uh, we went through a week's worth of verifying that there were no conflicts and so forth. Uh, go into a major attorney's office, lead attorney in that office uh, is brought in by a, an associate saying, you know, this guy has uh, expertise in your particular area, which happened to be radio stations. We had some issues, and so we went for two and a half hours, and at the end of two and a half hours, the lead attorney says, I need to make a disclosure. I said, what's that? He said, I own station, da 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 I said, you're my direct competitor. We compete for dollars every day. And he said, I know that. that is crazy. I said, you can't use any of this information, da-da-da-da-da, took it all to the state board, and uh, the state board said that there was no conflict, that your direct competitor would bilk your brain for two and a half hours knowing full well that the two communities were located, you know, adjacent to each other and knowing full well that he was competing with you every day. And then the, the state board of Texas determined that that was not a conflict. And the other thing that happened in that particular circumstance is my attorney had me file the grievance instead of him filing the grievance, which I later learned uh, in some training with one of my wife's seminars is actually strictly is, is against the rules, too. Theoretically, the attorneys are the only ones that are to file a grievance on, on the part of an attorney. All of that is a long way to come around and say, and, w- and when we got the ruling, my attorney said, you need to understand that this decision made by the state bar is is a political decision it's not an ethical decision and i think if you're really truthful with people when somebody uh, you know who's been as, as, as involved in the legal system uh in a good way running corporations and has seen the number of of uh degrees of malfeasance that i've seen out of the attorneys the state bar uh truthfully is not there to do much to help the attorneys know the game and they're politically connected and, and that's the sad reality of our circumstance. They all take oaths and many of them violate those oaths and violate those responsibilities on an ongoing basis. It is not a clean system. And thank God for the few in the prosecutorial side that are straight up, and thank God for the few in the defense side that are straight up and, and, and play straight. Uh, but they're, they're a 5% group You know, something like that. Just just a thought for you guys.
1: David, what a what a what a sad thought to leave us with. (laughs) Professor Gershon, I'm so glad that at Ole Miss, our kids uh, take the ethics class.
2: They do at 8 o'clock with me three days a week, and they have to take it. And, you know, I I have to say, David, I think you've had a bad experience. And really, I think you're seeing the 5% of the bad side because 95% of the lawyers I know are ethical. They do the right things. T is one of them. And, you know, um, I'll quickly answer, and I'll let her follow up on this in terms of the the question about how can the the defense lawyer defend someone who maybe they don't think is a good person. That's the way our system works. And defense lawyers – Ensure that people like your wife, and I'm sure she's a good prosecutor. Play by the rules, right? That's what the if it wasn't for defense lawyers, prosecutors wouldn't have
3: to play by the rules. So that's exactly right. I, I, I'm not so much defending that guilty person if they wind up being actually guilty. It doesn't matter; they're innocent until they're proven guilty, and more importantly. They have a constitutional right. My duty is to the Constitution. I took a oath to hold it, and that's what I do every day. So if, for instance, I knew that my guy was 100% guilty and a terrible individual, I'm still obligated to try his case just as tirelessly as I would for any client that I assume is entirely innocent. Our system of justice just could not work otherwise. And I, and I hope and I believe that most criminal defense lawyers – Treat it the same way. We don't care if you're innocent or if you're guilty. What we care about are your constitutional rights, and you have a right to have your defense vigorously put forth in front of a jury. Uh, you know, there's that old saying that a that, you know an injustice anywhere you know affects justice everywhere. Or I'd rather see a hundred guilty men go free than one innocent man go to jail. Those those are the foundations of our modern criminal justice system, and, and they have to be upheld. It's
1: to cage a dragon is what it is well we have one more call that we're going to go to before our break we're going to go to gary who's on the road gary be extra careful driving but we're glad that you've called into in to legal terms go ahead
5: okay thank you good morning yeah, i'm hands-free I, I drive a truck i do this all the time but
1: i was wondering in capital
5: cases involving the death penalty uh, a lot of times the evidence is overwhelming, and it's pretty much assured the person's going to get convicted. Yet they cop a plea for life in prison and to avoid the death penalty. And uh, why do they not go ahead and have the trial anyway? Uh, it, I think it's a slap in the family. They're slapping their face uh, for a murderer. You know that if he's found guilty, to be locked up for decades. In decades, with no chance of getting out, and uh, which costs more—a trial or fifty, sixty years in prison?
3: Well, I, I believe it, it costs more to have a death penalty trial.
5: I'm going to listen off air.
3: Thanks, Gary. Go ahead, T. Okay. Uh, it costs more for that criminal defendant to be tried with death penalty on the table certainly uh just throughout the appellate process it does uh so it it does cost more tax dollars if that's where the concern is in terms of the family of the victim There's a victim coordinator. Uh, They would talk with that victim, especially in a capital murder case. Listen, the district attorney would be meeting with that family regularly. The assistant district attorney would be meeting with that family regularly. They would not do anything that the family did not want. Um, You know, that's the district attorneys in the state, uh, you know, they they have to take into consideration the victims, uh, which, of course, would be the remaining family members. And so it would, you know, I don't see a situation where DA would would simply call it and say, well, this is how we're handling things without the family's input. A lot of families... I believe, want to put it behind them. Some families don't believe in the death penalty. This is a very religious state. Uh, They don't necessarily believe that that's proper. Some people actually think that they'll suffer more. It, it, It depends on the religiosity of that family, how they've been indoctrinated over the years. You know, everybody's different. And some people do. They just want eye for an eye, and, and certainly Mississippi is a death penalty state. So I, I think that would that would be a call that's made between the DA and the families, with the DA advising them of their risks and chances, one of which is in the death penalty case it could come back and they could have to sit through and go through that murder trial again. And most families simply cannot go through the stress of two murder trials. One is substantially heartbreaking. Uh, two is... is ungodly.
1: All right. So if you have any questions about how the criminal justice system works, we'd love for you to call in. Our number is 1877 MPB ring 18776727464. You can always send us an email. Legal Terms at MPBOnline.org. The Sixth Amendment to the Constitution guarantees us many rights. We'll list some of those when we come back. This is in Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
0: You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
1: Thank you for being a part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash Terms. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows I'm Liz Gill, here with Professor Richard Gershen from the University of Mississippi School of Law with our guest adjunct professor and private practice lawyer, Tiffany Kilpatrick. Now, the Sixth Amendment guarantees criminal defendants the right to a public trial and, in many cases, the right to have their guilt or innocence decided by a jury. It also affords the right to confront adverse witnesses and to use the court's subpoena power to compel the appearance of favorable witnesses. We have another call waiting for us. It's Charles from Mobile, Charles. We appreciate you being part of In Legal Terms today. Go ahead.
7: Good morning. Uh, I, I just heard the program was on, and uh, I called. And the Sixth Amendment is basically what I'm talking about. In the case of court errors by the court, I don't mean by the judge, but I mean say the clerk of the court stamps a case dismissed when it's not, or stamps a case not dismissed when it is. What time frame is the defendant given to correct or point out the clerk's mistake to the court? Or is there a time frame? And is the onus for fixing the mistake on the defendant or on the court?
3: Well, I I suppose I... Are you speaking to a situation in Mississippi, or is this something you encountered in Alabama? Just curious. Hello? Charles, uh, T. asked if this was
1: uh, an instance that you're referring to that was in Alabama or in Mississippi. It's
7: it's, it's Alabama, and we're just talking about a minor traffic case. Well, that's I, and I
3: ask that question simply because we don't have clerks that stamp something dismissed or, or otherwise, everything's on the record in circuit court where you have felonies. As for misdemeanors here in Mississippi, that would be in either city court or in justice court. Those generally aren't courts of record, meaning that there's not a court reporter up there typing down everything that's said in court, and there's not a recording, audio, video, otherwise as far as what transpired. So you would have to go fix that, and I, that would be problematic in a, in a court of no record. I, I don't know well, how Alabama set I, up. I, I can't imagine that
4: they <laughs> have better flight. means
3: of recording than we do here.
7: But the Sixth Amendment. I mean, I'm guessing. What my question is: yeah. in misdemeanor court, traffic court, are you are you uh, afforded less constitutional protections than in other forms of court where uh, jail time or incarceration are imminent?
3: Sure, you are, uh, and obviously one of those forms of, of less protection would be recording. Right? You're afforded, Mm -hmm. at at the felony level, everything that happens in court will be recorded by the court reporter. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you're not afforded that protection in the lower courts, as far as misdemeanors are concerned. And there's other constitutional rights that you don't have, and certainly rules of evidence that don't apply in these Mm -hmm. lower courts, justice, or municipal courts.
7: So, in other words, if you make a mistake in a minor case, it's your problem, and if the court makes a mistake in a minor case, it's still your problem.
3: If they stamped it incorrectly, it's, it's, you're going to have to take that up with them. I, I believe that the phone oh, would shift well, you,
7: unfortunately. Mm-hmm, yeah. All right. That was my question. Thank you very much. I wish much. it
3: were different.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Charles. We appreciate you for calling in. All right, T, we have a few minutes left. Uh, we were talking about witness examination and, and uh, finish out uh, the parts of a trial for us.
3: you know the government's going to go through they're going to put on their case first they're going to put up their witnesses they'll have direct examination after which the defense counsel will then get up and and they'll cross-examine that witness when they close their case you know the, the judge will be asked by defense counsel you know whether there's enough evidence for it to go forward to the jury and at the Point either defense counsel can put on its own witnesses or you know that can that can be a wrap uh, certainly that has happened in trials before where defense counsel has no witnesses their their case is entirely impeaching or discrediting the, the witnesses on the government side uh, and of course all that's followed up with closing arguments which are my favorite I, I don't opening arguments to me are sort of, you know, they're promises that are lying out there that everybody hopes that they make. Closing arguments are are way more fun, they're way more dramatic, I believe, and that's when and and systematic as well, because you're linking every single piece of evidence that you elicited in the trial, either coming out of a witness's mouth or a document that you laid out on the table. Uh, you're gonna link those up to the burden of proof that is the elements, the things that the government had to prove in order for the jury to find your client guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So I'm a big fan of closing arguments. I I certainly, I I go to every trial that we have here in Lafayette County. Uh, You know, I I enjoy watching them. You you can learn from mistakes. I certainly have made many a mistake. And you can watch another lawyer do it and say to yourself, ooh, I don't want to do that. Uh, You can also see great things in closing argument where you tell yourself, I'm going to adapt to that. That was pretty cool. Well,
2: thank you.
3: Thank
1: you, Tiffany Kilpatrick, for being on our show today. Thank you, Liz. I appreciate it. I had a good time. All right. Well, this is going to wrap us up for today's In Legal Terms. Our call screener today has been Java. Chapman and our board engineer in Jackson has been Jay White so for Professor Richard Gershon who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law I'm Liz Gill up next is our Tuesday Southern Remedy show Relatively Speaking but we hope you'll join us again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.